0: Well, good morning everyone. My name's David. I'm one of the pastors here at Highway. It's great to see all of you on this rainy Sunday. Uh, I had a starting revelation this week that it's two and a half weeks until Christmas. I know. I don't know where December's gone. I feel like I was just getting acclimated to pumpkin spice season, uh, which now feels wildly inappropriate, like everything has to be some sort of fancy mint flavor now, even if that mint flavor is made up like winter mint, which by the way is not a real plant. Uh, Getting this close to Christmas, though, does mean a couple things. It means it's officially okay to play Christmas music now. We've passed the Thanksgiving demarcation zone, uh, and it means that we've gotten to focus our services on this Advent season starting last week. Uh, we looked at Isaiah 9, that passage that we come to so often this time of year as the days grow short and the nights grow long, uh, where there's this promise of, that people walking in darkness would see a great light. That a child would be born that would change the world and create an entirely different reality. That a kingdom of justice and peace would come through this baby who would be our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, and our prince of peace. And this week we're starting our Advent series in earnest. Now this time of year always poses an interesting challenge for teaching and creative arts pastors. Uh, There's this drive for like What's the new rev on a Christmas series? Is there perhaps some new angle through film or through literature or through current events? Can you perhaps map Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem, onto Elsa and Anna's journey into the unknown? <laughs> Only an act of true love can thaw frozen heart. Think about it. I love the creative process. It's important and it's good to find new and relatable and inviting ways into something that if we are not careful, can actually start to become over familiar, to reclaim some freshness to things that are so true, so profound, so beautiful, and yet through repetition and through time can start to lose their influence and their impact. It's like we can gain an unwanted immunity to things that are actually really important to remember. And so this Advent season, we wanted to come back to this question. Why? Why did Jesus come? Why step into human history? Why the incarnation? Why Emmanuel? And the answers may be familiar, but they are as true as they are beautiful. The reconciling of all things. The peace made by his blood shed on the cross. And to show us how to love God and to love each other. And to show us how much we are loved. God's gift to the world. And so this morning I want to talk about Christmas presents. Not Christmas presents, but Christmas presents. You're welcome. (laughs) True story. I suggested several times in a way that was mostly joking, but also kind of serious, that we should call the series Christmas presents. Uh, But Jake said if we did that, then we'd have to call it Christmas presents, but dum bum which just started to get too long. (laughs) And so we landed on This Present Glory, a title that actually works really well for what we'll be focusing on in the coming weeks, the fullness of God's glory present to us through the birth of Jesus. We're talking about God's presence today. And as we do, we'll talk about this dual nature to that presence, that it's big and close at the same time, that God's presence is infinite and at the same time intimate. That God's presence is divine, transcendent, and supernatural, and yet at the same time intensely personal, tangible. And we'll see that in the way that John opens his gospel, and we'll hear the way, and we'll hear that in a way that Jesus navigates a moment of intense heartache. And if you hear and take one thing with you this morning, would you hear that whatever space that you're currently in that God is with you that in a world that tells us that we have to earn our place, that we have to be enough, that God has stepped into human history to come for you so that the fullness of his presence might be with you. As we get started this morning, would you pray with me? God, we confess the joy that comes sometimes from thinking well about things, the excitement that comes from it, But God, I pray that you would press this conversation about an experience of your presence beyond just our minds and into our hearts, into the fiber of our beings. That what may be familiar would be made new again. That we would be present to your glory that is present with us. I pray that that would spark hope in us. That shines light into the world around us. We do this for you. We pray these things in and for your name. Amen. If you've got a copy of the scriptures with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. John's gospel was likely written a little bit after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so it varies in form a little bit. Like John's more of an artist, uh, where Mark might be more of a pragmatist. Uh, But John is deeply concerned with returning to Old Testament symbolism, connecting what would have been the familiar Jewish scriptures at the time to the life of Jesus. Because the common critique from educated Jewish scholars was that followers of Jesus thought he was the Messiah because they didn't know their scriptures. Like if they did, they'd clearly see that he wasn't who he said that he was. And so John 1 reads kind of like a theological, oh really? See, John wants to establish Jesus' infinite presence from the beginning of creation. To say that this is the infinite creator God, not just some rabbi from Nazareth. And John wants to show how Jesus redefines what it means for God to be present with his people. And he does it with a reference back to one of the most pivotal moments in Jewish history. There are 40 years in the desert after being freed from captivity in Egypt. A time when God was visibly, tangibly present with them through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Would you take a look with me at John 1, starting in verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the Word. And John's doing two things here that are really important. He is saying that Jesus is infinite. From the beginning, direct, quote, hyperlink back to Genesis 1 and the creation of the world. And then he calls Jesus the Word, capital W. What's with that? In the Jewish tradition, we see it even reflected in the scriptures. There was was a way of thinking about God that personified God's attributes. Gave them three-dimensionality. God's name goes forth in justice and righteousness. God's wisdom calls out from the city walls and at the city gates in Proverbs 1. And John is saying something really specific about Jesus here. That Jesus is the word. The Greek word logos, which means that the divine wisdom of God, the divine wisdom of God that ordered the universe in creation, infinite. And the divine wisdom of God that ordered daily life through the Jewish law, intimate. Jesus is the word personified. That he was with God and was God from the beginning. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And there is not a darkness that can overcome it. And John continues on referencing John the Baptist who came before Jesus to prepare the way. A reference pulled straight out of Isaiah 40 about a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. See, this is a really sophisticated response to the critique that to be a follower of Jesus, you must not really understand the Hebrew scriptures. And John's going to take it another step. He writes about how the light came into the world. And even though the world was made through and for that light, the world didn't recognize it. But the light came anyway. John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, was full of, Of grace and truth. Slight detour. Speaking of Christmas presents, are you all familiar with those LOL pets and dolls? They come in this sphere-shaped thing all wrapped in plastic. Creates a lot of trash, but it's a pretty genius idea because it's like ten gifts in one. As you unwrap the plastic, you keep getting little accessories or a water bowl, or a baby bottle until you get to the doll or toy that's inside. And the more you unwrap, the more there is to see and enjoy. The richer the experience. And John 1.14 is like that. It's another sophisticated passage, that an Old Testament reference that for many folks, first experiencing this passage, it would have been like humming a familiar melody. See, the word dwelling is the same translated word as tabernacled. It's a massive hyperlink back to Exodus 33 and 34 when Israel was wandering around in the desert and God gave them his word, his law, and the Ten Commandments that were then kept in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where God's presence, the fullness of his glory was with his people. John's saying that Jesus is the new that. The fullness of God's wisdom and law and the fullness of God's glory in tangible, present form. John 1, continuing on in verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. See, no one's been able to see the fullness of God's glory until Jesus showed up. And John's doing this incredible overlay on Exodus 33 and 34 here, and I'd really encourage you this week to read those chapters and then read John 1, 1 to 18, and look at the symmetry. Unwrap another layer of the gift. Here's just a sneak peek. This isn't my grid. Uh, this actually comes from the Cultural Application Study Bible we handed out last year when Dr. John Walton, who was the Old Testament editor for the project, spent a weekend with us. And look at how John is building off the idea that God's word revealed of God's Word revealed to his people and building off the idea of his presence with them. And then watch for how he pushes that idea forward. With what he says about Jesus. In Exodus 33 and 34 we see the revelation of God's word through the Torah. God dwells among his people in the tabernacle. Moses pleads that God would continue to dwell with them. There's this moment where Moses beholds God's glory from kind of like behind a rock because he can't be exposed to the fullness of it. He sees the back of God as he passes by. And that glory was full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses, but no one could see all of God's glory. And then John 1, 14 to 18, see the revelation of God's word through Jesus. The word made his dwelling tabernacled among people. The disciples behold Jesus's glory, and that glory was full of grace and truth. And even though the law came through Moses, no one could see all of God's glory but it's fully revealed in Jesus. See, the word tabernacled among people. And no one could see all of God's glory, but it's fully revealed in Jesus. There's a couple things I want us to remember with all this. One is to just sit with how beautiful and intricate and sophisticated the scriptures are that we can enjoy them and be formed by them no matter what we bring to them, but the invitation is for us to keep pressing in, to keep discovering this unified story that leads to Jesus. To keep unwrapping the gift. And the others on this theme of presence. See, God's presence had been a long and painful question for the nation of Israel. It had been so real, so tangible in this moment with the tabernacle and the cloud and in the fire with the Ark of the Covenant. And then when they built the temple. But then that physical place was gone. When Babylon conquered Israel and brought them into exile, they destroyed the temple. But in captivity, God continued to remind Israel. His people, through the voices of the prophets, prophets, that one day he would deliver them out of exile. He would bring them back into this kind of experience of his presence. He promised through the prophets that one day he would send a Savior. But when the Israelites were eventually allowed to come back into their land and rebuild the temple, things were different. The prophets had stopped. God was silent. And in that silence, questions start to come up. Where was God? Would God speak again? Would God show up again? Or had God abandoned them? And after 400 years of silence, that's a long time. After 400 years of silence, light shines in the darkness. That Savior God had promised came in the person of Jesus, the one who the prophet said would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus came, John said, and tabernacled with us. Jesus came to restore God's presence with his people. And also through his presence and through his tabernacling with us, Jesus came to show us the fullness of God's glory in a way that the world hadn't quite experienced before. So how does this divine wisdom that ordered the universe, the word who was God from the beginning, how does the word shine light into the darkness? What does Jesus teach us about the way that God is present with us? Have you ever cooked in someone else's kitchen before? It's really hard. Ovens are different. Skillets are different. But for me, the hardest part is that it's not set up like the way that ours is. And so what usually happens is I wind up spending like five minutes looking for something like kitchen twine, uh, which really means I spend three minutes looking for it, get frustrated, call Brittany over, lament that there is no twine, and then she finds it in half a second. Experiencing God as present with us, I think, feels this way sometimes. And the question of God's presence was a long and painful one for the nation of Israel, and it can be for us, too. And I think part of why that is, is because we've got really strong notions of where God's supposed to be. What's supposed to happen when God is present? How the kitchen's supposed to be arranged? And we see God's presence in good things. We see God's presence in forgiveness. We see God's presence in reconciliation, in justice, in safety. We see God's presence in the companionship of a dear friend, in hope, in healing, in answered prayer. And we see God's presence in good things, and God is certainly there in the midst of those things. But what about loss? What about grief? What about the brokenness of addiction? What about the chaos caused by sin? What about sickness or hunger or injustice or pain? What about depression or anxiety? Or so many of the silent struggles that can be so isolating, yet so many of us walk with. Things many of us have prayed that God would take away or even fix, and yet are still there. What does the Word, infinite and eternal God, from the beginning through whom everything was made, and yet who came to tabernacle with us, what does the Word do with moments like this? How does Jesus interact with heartache? And what does he show us about how God is present with us? What the fullness of his glory is like in those moments? I only have time to pick one example today, though there are many. It comes from John chapter 11. Jesus is out in the wilderness with his disciples when messengers come with, to him with news that a dear friend is sick. Subtext dying. Please come now. It's been at least a day's journey from the village of Bethany where Lazarus lived with his sisters Mary and Martha, and it'll be be at least another day's journey back. Lazarus might have already died before the message even got to Jesus. And when word gets to Mary and Martha that Jesus has finally come, Martha runs out to meet him, And Mary's following the Jewish custom of at least one family member staying at the home to be with the guests who had come to mourn with them. And so Martha goes with a message. When Martha reaches Jesus, she says this, John 11, verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. It's a statement of faith that's also a clear accusation. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And that's how it feels, doesn't it? God, where were you? And Jesus gets that same response from Mary when she comes out of the house to meet him. John 11, starting in verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What does Jesus do? Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That's the same word used, by the way, to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested, distraught to the point of sweating blood. Verse 34, where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And the passage goes on from there to tell us that Jesus asks them to roll away the stone that they had put in front of the tomb. And everyone's freaked out. It's going to smell terrible. Lazarus has been dead for four days. His body's starting to decompose. Well, they roll the stone away, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he does. What a miracle! How sure those gathered around must have felt that God was with them in that moment. That the infinite and eternal God of the universe really had taken on flesh and bone to dwell among them, was with them, had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. You see, it's easy for us to see how God was present in Lazarus's resurrection. But I want us to see how he was present with Mary and Martha in their grief that he entered into their sorrow with them. That he grieved the death of their brother in the same way that he would one day grieve his own. That in their assertions of his absence, he never left them. He didn't scold or reprimand their response. The infinite and eternal God of the universe wept with them. Because that's how God tabernacles with his people. Why did Jesus come? Why the incarnation? Why this thing we celebrate and remember during the Advent season? A part of that answer is presence. John 1 tells us that Jesus came to restore God's presence with his people and to redefine it so that we could see the fullness of God's glory in him. And this morning, can we see that glory in the way that he is present as infinite, mighty, and divine in Lazarus's resurrection? And intimate, compassionate, fully present with Mary and Martha in their grief. And can we know that he is present with us in the same way? You see, the fullness of God's presence is with you. From the moments of resurrection to the grief of death, Emmanuel. God is with us. This Advent season, what darkness is desperate for the light of God's presence? Where is God inviting us to reclaim what can become so dangerously familiar? that the word who is and was from the beginning took on flesh to dwell among us, that God loved the world so much that he came for us, ultimately went to the cross for us so that no matter what space we find ourselves in, there is not a light, there is not a darkness that can overcome the light that shined. I've been wrestling with wanting to come up with a how to experience God's presence list That seems like a natural way to try to be practically helpful. Do this thing. Think this way. Pray like this. That actually doesn't quite seem to be in line with what the scriptures we've looked at today are saying, though. And so I want to leave us with a question instead. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 139. See, what if instead of having to hold on to God's presence, we're actually being held by it instead? In the grip of fear, in the darkness of sin, in the sorrow of loss, in the chaos of addiction, in the pain of loneliness, in the despair of shame, or even the callousness that can come with familiarity. What if instead of trying to hold on to God's presence, it's holding on to us? Present with us. Shining light into the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome. Jesus came so that the world would know God's presence this way. This Advent season, with the simple and beautiful truth of Emmanuel, God with us, take hold of us, and lead us to a joy that sustains in any circumstance and a peace that surpasses all understanding. Would you pray with me? God, in this moment, I pray that you would help us reclaim what may become familiar that you're with us. And that that would move from being an intellectual understanding to a lived reality. That we would marvel at the wonder that the all-powerful almighty God of the universe came and dwelled among us, entered into the human experience. so that through your death and resurrection, we could be with you. That there could be nothing that could separate us from your love and your presence. God, would that give us hope? Would that give us joy? Would that bring us to peace this Advent season? We pray these things in and for your name. Amen.